0: We are turning into the book of Hosea. Uh, we have two more weeks in Hosea, and I will tell you this: I am up next week, and then the following four weeks, I'm on sabbatical. And I want to—I want you to know—I didn't do anything wrong. Okay, I'm not—they're not forcing me to take a sabbatical. Uh, it is in our uh, handbook. It's in our constitution. Our elders really want to see our. Uh, pastors take sabbatical away from work every five years, and this is year number six, and so I'm due uh, to do this. So I'm going to be gone for the four weeks, the last four weeks of May. We've got a lot of great guest speakers coming in, and I'm excited about them teaching from the platform. So just be uh, aware of that. You won't see me for a little bit, but know that there's nothing wrong, so don't spread any rumors, please. <laughs> last two weeks of Hosea, and we're going to look at chapters 12 and 13 today, kind of an overview. T- Uh, this week of of a story that we find in chapter 12 that has implications in chapter 13. And then we'll focus on 14 uh, next week. Now, here we are. I think we've been in Hosea for two months now. And here we are again at uh, at another cycle uh, where God's people forget and they forsake God and God warns them and he acts decisively to intervene amongst his wayward people. And so as we sit here two months In to Hosea, maybe you're like, "Okay, I get it. (laughs) Like, I get it. Like, this thing repeats: is people are foolish, they're silly, they're wayward. The cycle continues. They don't ever learn their lesson. God disciplines, rebukes. It's the same old thing that I've been talking about for the last two months. I get it, Steve. Well, I, I think it's important that we we sit in this book. Thoroughly and, and read it, because I, I, there's a lot of health to some repetitiveness in our life. I, I think our culture bends us towards being entertained. And so we have this inkling in our soul. We want the new fresh thing, and we want to move on from other things, specifically if that thing isn't Conveying how great we are. We 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 don't want to hear the negative things. I don't want to hear my wife talk to me about the fact that I leave my socks everywhere in the house all the time. Like I don't want that's repetitive. I don't want to hear that, but it's true, and I need to hear it. And so the things that we need to hear, we don't want to hear, and we don't want to hear them, we don't want to be repeated, but I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, of joy and sitting in, 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 in realities that we don't necessarily want to hear and hearing them over and over again. They develop a deeper knowledge and, and really deeper postures of joy and of surrender. And so what I think here in Hosea 12 through 14, what I think the Lord might do is he might give us an opportunity to some, in some ways to, to shed the veneer or, or the buffer that we sometimes put up amongst ourselves when we read stories like this. I mean, think about the events uh, that are going on in the world right now. I mean, there's there's an election going on in France. There's a war in Ukraine. And and we know all of those things are are going on, but yet we aren't affected by those things nearly as much as those who are face-to-face with them. And so our distance creates realities where we don't we we just don't live in their reality. We just kind of live delusionally, and what I think chapters twelve through fourteen will do for us is is that they will serve a little bit like acetone, and that I think that they with the work of the Spirit can strip us bare and remove some of the things that we hide behind to show us who we truly are. And that is for our own good, because next week we're going to talk about how we return to the Lord in those seasons of waywardness. Now, what's interesting here is in Hosea 12, God takes us all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, to the story of Jacob. And the story of Jacob is here in Hosea uh, because Jacob is the nation's namesake. Uh, God changes Jacob's name to Israel for some very good reason, and the name Israel becomes the name of the nation, and it serves as a very good reminder to God's people in the future and today of who exactly he is. But as we have read in these last two months, the the nation continues to go astray. They have forsaken the name that the Lord has given them, and they have actually reverted back to their Jacob roots. And we'll talk more of what that means. And so let's just go ahead and jump into Hosea 12 today. Verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God, a merchant in, which, in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich, and I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt." I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets that it was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will lead his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Let's pray. Lord, we we come under your word today. And we believe that it's good and right, uh, that it is necessary in our life to know what's in this book, to understand who you are, that we might educate ourselves to a greater degree of who we are not, that we would delight in exactly who you were in our. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this word by your spirit to bring gladness and conviction into our hearts, lead us to paths of righteousness by your word, Lord. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. And so the story of Jacob that's highlighted here in Hosea is found in Genesis chapters 25 through 36. And Hosea uses it by the inspiration of the Lord to help his nation see what he wants from them, this nation that he loves so greatly. And so God reminds his people of their history, where they came from, what they've done, and most importantly, what is in them What is in their heart? Why? Because history has a profound way of repeating itself when we don't learn from it. And that is true both of Israel and it's true of us. And so I wanna sketch some details of the life of Jacob to help us have a better picture of what's going on. And so the first time we meet Jacob is in verse three, and it recalls that from the moment of his birth into his manhood, that Jacob has been a conniver and a deceiver. It says that in the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Even before he came out of his mother's Rebekah's womb, he tried to cheat his twin brother Esau. So the word Jacob means he is at the hill. And in Hebrew, that word is rooted in the word deceiver. And, you know, some people say you live up to your name. Jacob actually lives down to his name. He steals his brother's birthright after they're grown, and then he manipulates his father into stealing the blessing of the firstborn son. Now, understandably, if if your brother does this, it's going to create a conflict. And so there is a great conflict between Esau and Jacob, And so Jacob, fearing for his life, he flees to go live with his uncle Laban. And it says so much in verse 12. And on one night during that journey to Laban, uh, Jacob has a dream. And he saw in that dream a ladder that went from the earth to the sky, and angels were ascending and descending from that. And God calls him up into heaven, into his presence. And God assures to Jacob a greater birthright than he had manipulated and deceived his brother Esau from and manipulated his father. It was mind-blowing, to say the least, to, to Jacob. Jacob had not expected to meet God there. He wasn't searching after God, and he certainly had done nothing to deserve God's blessing that he wanted to give to him. And so Jacob is so deeply moved by these events that his heart sings to this dream, and he builds an altar, and he calls it Bethel, which stands for the house of God. In Hosea chapter 12, verse four, it says, he met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with him, and the the, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. And so Jacob, the manipulator, the deceiver, had an experience with the sovereign, majestic God of the universe, and he was promised that his offspring would be like dust on the earth, plentiful. But Jacob wasn't necessarily ready to live as one who was satisfied with God's blessing, nor was he restful in God's acceptance and love. His flesh still wanted control. He still sought to manipulate things, so they bent towards him. However, Jacob finds uh, in Laban a, a more challenging opponent than he thinks. Laban is probably a bigger manipulator than Jacob was. And so Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and the two come to an agreement that Jacob can marry Rachel, but it will cost Jacob something. He offers to work for seven years in Laban's land to take Rachel's hand in marriage. And then Laban agrees to that, but we know that he has some tricks up his sleeve, including deceiving Jacob into consummating his marriage Not with Rachel, but with his oldest daughter Leah. And then tricking Jacob into working much, much longer in his land to secure his bride. And so Laban seemed at every turn to outmaneuver and manipulate Jacob time and time again. He ended up living in the land of Aram with Laban for 20 years. 20 years. And in that time, he achieved a lot of physical blessing and wealth. But there still was a restlessness inside of Jacob's heart. And it says so much in Scripture here. It says, but all of his riches can never offset the guilt he has incurred. And so what Hosea says is that that all of his wealth, for what he had, it never satisfied the remorse of the sin that he first had done with Esau. He grieved what he had done to Esau, and he wanted to go home. And so he longed for return. He was stuck with Laban, God, delivers him dramatically from the hand of Laban and he heads back home. And in Genesis, our narrative tells us over and over and over again that God was with Jacob. He was with Jacob. He had been there with him for the previous 20 years, although Jacob was oblivious to his presence and his activity, but God was with him. And on his way home to Esau, Jacob has a divine encounter with God. And we read of it in verse 4 here in Hosea 12. It says that in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. God initiates a confrontation. He wrestles with Jacob all night by a brook called Jabbok. Jacob refers to this place as the face of God. And he said, I have seen God's face And yet he has preserved my life. And so as this crucial night of confrontation kind of comes to an end, God dislocates Jacob's hip. Some people think that he broke it. And because of it, Jacob limped the rest of his life. God did not want Jacob to fight anymore because Jacob wouldn't let go of the Lord until he blessed him. The deepest need of Jacob's life was to know God's blessing, even though he already had it. And that is our deepest need as well, to know God's blessing, even though we already have it. The lack of sense of God's blessing and his lack of understanding it caused Jacob's manipulativeness, his deception. And in that wrestling match with God, Jacob had to face the man he had been and in a moment, he had to relinquish control of his life to God. And so at the end of this encounter with God, God gives him a new name. No longer is he Jacob, the deceiver or manipulator. Now he's Israel, which can stand for God prevails. God prevails. What God wants most for his nation in this chapter is that they go to the Madigan with him, that they wrestle with God over their identity, and that they relinquish their control, that they no longer live, but they don't live by their namesake anymore. As one who believes that God will prevail, they have resorted to their old manipulative ways. They have, in a sense, become like Jacob of old, self-delusion, believing that they have control. And so God is giving his nation a history lesson here. And it reveals to them and to us an undeniable truth that that I think King Solomon speaks better than most anyone. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, what has been done will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. This cycle of God's provision and blessing and love, meeting with human pride and unwillingness, And then humanity forgetting and forsaking God has played out ever since the beginning of time. And it will too in our own life because it probably already has. There is a Greek historian named Herodotus, and he said of all men's misery, the bitterest is this, to know so much and to have control over nothing. All of our life seems to gravitate towards us believing that we know more than what we really do. That in a sense, we come to this delusion of control, but all it is is manipulation. But what God has challenged his people with is an historical proof that they are weaker, more conniving, more prideful than they're wanting to admit. And that their truest self is actually found in the bonds of God's faithfulness and love, that they have less control than they think they do, and that their truest rest comes by trusting in the character and the name of the God they serve. And so, friends, look, just as the nation was forced to look back on its past in the hopes that it might alter their future, so must we, If Israel looked back on the founder of the nation to learn pivotal lessons, we must look back at God's people here in Hosea and ask some very stark and specific questions of ourselves. Namely, what is in me? What's in me? Because the only way that we return to the Lord is by understanding our lostness, and God's grace only becomes scandalous to us when we realize how bad and sinful human beings can really be. And so Mark Vrogop, he's a pastor at College Park Church in Indianapolis. Uh, he's, he makes a few comments on this. He says that we need regular reality checks because we will easily convince ourselves that we are the exception to the rule and that everyone else is worse than us. And he speaks of a few truths that Hosea paints for all of humanity that I want to expand upon. And so let's look at Hosea in a way it reminds of, that it reminds us of who we really are, knowing, knowing this, that we're not going to stay here, that we're not going to stay here. And so what does Hosea reveal to us? That we're a people of broken desires. That the tragedy of God's people is that we have an insatiable appetite to do the wrong thing with hearts that are bent in the wrong direction. And in chapter 11, we hear like them say that the more they were called, which means it was called by sin, the more that they were drawn away. And in that same chapter, it tells us that the natural disposition of the human heart is bent towards evil. As humanity, we want what we should not, but we are convinced of its virtue. Hosea paints us as people who are prone to hypocrisy. In Hosea, God takes them to task over their spiritual hypocrisy. They are surrounding him with lies. They're telling him that they love him. But in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. It's very similar to what the prophet Isaiah said. He says this, that the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Sacrifice and worship and singing are continuing, but their hearts are far from God. No doubt they easily spot hypocrites in their midst, yet they themselves are full of spiritual fakery. Hosea paints us as people who have futile living. And we find this devastating statement in chapter 12. It says that, that the people feed on the wind, that they pursue the east wind all day long, And in the Bible, this kind of language about the wind is used to describe a passion for the pointlessness. And the book of Ecclesiastes frequently uses wind in this way. And a great example of that is Solomon in, in, in chapter one of Ecclesiastes saying, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. They are pursuing things that will not deliver for them, that will not satisfy them. Rather than looking to God for their deliverance, they have now turned to Assyria. They have now turned to Egypt. They are afraid of what is happening. I repeat, they are afraid of what is happening to them, but they keep running to the wrong places. Uh, Tim Keller uh, is a pastor. He, He connects this kind of fear with a problem of idolatry, and he writes this. He says, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on an idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We don't say, what a shame, or lament how difficult this is, but rather what we say is, this is the end. There is no hope. And So this begs us to ask the question of what sort of fear is produced in our life. If somebody came to you and said, all your money is gone tomorrow, or your job is gone, or if you know that somebody you love won't be there tomorrow, do we say, well, that's the end? There's no hope. And I think that that is the gracious hand of our God revealing to us that sometimes we have things in the wrong priority. Hosea says that we're self-deceived. In verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 7, he characterizes us as a people of self-deception. There's a culture that's characterized by oppression and unfairness. But the wealth of the nation has caused them to look over their sins. Their wealth has convinced them that they're better than they really are. Their prosperity has led to their pride. And their pride has caused them to minimize their waywardness to God. I mean, think about this. How much different would your life be if somebody took away all your wealth? I mean, what, what would you hold on to? What would you cling to? Life would be very different. We are very tempted to, in life, have this sort of, arrogant disposition to look at the course of our life and think, look what I did. How dangerous is it to believe that God blessed us because we're special or faithful? How frequent it happens that we believe the press releases of our own self-deceived hearts, that maybe we don't intellectually confess it, but in our action, we convey it. We believe that we're the most important person in the world. Hosea, says that we're never satisfied. Maybe we would want this indictment to stop, but it continues. In chapter 13, verse 2, it says this. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. Human beings are never static in their sin. There's always a pull towards the next and this text tells us that because they became skillful at creating metal images, they were the works of craftsmen, and yet the people in them became like the morning mist, like dew on the ground, like chaff, like smoke. They loved things for a moment, and then they were on to the next thing. They were all in for a moment, and then they were on to the next thing. And I'm sure you get a sense of this in your own life, the promise of the next vacation, The promise of the next experience, the next weekend, the next job, a promise of the next compliment or the next affirmation or the next completed project, or maybe it's the promise of the next relationship or the next pleasing image or sexual experience. This relentless pursuit, this insatiable hunger, creates people who are unstable, unfulfilled, and deeply, deeply unhappy. Sin is a shadow that is never satisfied. It always wants more, and it is all-consuming. And I think the last thing that Hosea reminds us of is that we're forgetful. And he describes it this way in Hosea 13, verse 6. He said, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. It is a great summary of the essence of the problem for Israel and for us, that when we become full, when we are full, when our hearts are lifted up in our pride, we forget God. And the nation was warned about this in the very beginning in Deuteronomy. From God himself, he cautioned them about taking the gifts of the promised land, the vineyards, the the olive trees, the wells, and forgetting how God had rescued them out of Egypt. Is this not true of our own lives? What is more dangerous to our spiritual attention and affection? Hard times or good times? Do we not pray more intentionally with greater fervor when we're scared and afraid? Do we not seek the Lord passionately when our marriage is on the rocks? It's much easier to forget the Lord when our heart is full. So, what does the scripture reveal to us? It's true of me, it's true of you. Let's review you. And this is a heavy list. It's not fun to listen to, but it's important. Because part of the reason that we're here today, hopefully, is not to feel good about ourselves necessarily, but to receive caution from the Word about what we're really like. And so Israel's story is my story. Gomer's story is my story. And all of us have to have a J-book moment in our life, an encounter, a time where we come to the end of trying to manipulate life, trying to manipulate others, trying to manipulate God himself. Our J-book moment is when we completely come completely honest to God and we confess the patterns of our broken desires, our hypocrisy, our futile living, our self-deception, our insatiable desires, and our forgetfulness, where our truest self meets the true God in weakness, that we go to the mat with him over whose control is over our life. Our history as God's people educates us it lets us know the truth of ourselves that we cannot ignore, cannot ignore it so look i don't i don't say this to shame us i'm not trying to guilt us uh, i tell you because the the only hope of change comes by us not re- ignoring this reality but embracing it to own it and go to the mat with god over the truth of ourselves immature and insecure people never want to be told When they're wrong. And the same is true for spirituality. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis summarizes the need for self reflection in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. We cannot be blind to our own foolishness and pride. And we cannot forget our fallenness because the lesson of Isaiah is very, very clear. The more that we trust ourselves, the more in love with ourselves we become, the more we prioritize ourselves, the more we control by means of manipulation, the more destructive we become to ourselves, to others, and to the world. You know, chapter 13 is a hard chapter to read, and I want you to read it on your own. It's full of language of God destroying his people. After a long suffering period, God allows his people to be destroyed. And it's full of imageries of children dying and pregnant women being ripped open. And what is often our response is to read it with great offense as we consider how could God do this to us? But we take very little ownership in the fact that we are the ones that created the mess. That this is 100% on us. It is not God's fault, but our sin would rather have us indict God than admit our own lacking and corruptness. And so, friends, my point is simple today. Uh, the history of God's people is, our peop- is ours. We aren't just like the people in Hosea. We're not just like them in a way that we can just, well, I'm kind of like them. No, we are those people. And if we don't heed the warnings of our past, we will walk in the same destruction that they find. And so here's what I want us to consider this week. It's a simple question. What is in me? What is is in me? And to be honest, to be honest about it. Because there is joy in going to the mat with God over the control of our lives. There is joy in surrender. There's joy in trusting him. in him. The truth is, is that Jacob found it, and his name was changed forever, that God would prevail. God prevails, and he will do with us the same, with or without us. And so that invite means this, is that all we simply can do in this life and all the days of our life is to abide in the truth of God's character and his goodness we rest in who he is. And we learn greater doses of what it means to die to ourselves daily. Because there is something in me that bends me away from God. And it is for my joy to be honest about it. Hosea 12 and 13. Next week we look at how we return to God.